Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. My title this morning is A Dialogue with Madness. Um, Madness. Madness. (laughs) I don't think it's any huge leap to say there's something wrong with people. In Mobley, we're continually aware of the suicides, child abuse, child murder, spouse abuse, drug abuse, and maybe just the all-around hellishness of people's lives. The hard reality is that people have experienced trauma, they've been made mentally ill by that trauma, and the effects of that is going to consume much of their life, if not all of their life. David works with those traumatized by their experience in the military. And he works through the VA. He's able to tap into many services for those suffering from PTSD. On the national level, every 65 minutes a suicide, a veteran kills himself. And I'm afraid that he's also experienced a kind of losing battle just this last few weeks, two of the people that he helps have committed suicide. People are traumatized. They are mentally suffering. I believe the work of Christ is to bring a very specific healing into our lives. And I'm afraid we have missed this healing because we have perhaps misdiagnosed the disease and misunderstood the cure. Therapy, by the way, therapion, it's a very good Greek word. It's the word that we have in the New Testament. In the secular Greek, it has the sense to serve someone, but in, particularly in the New Testament, it means to heal. And our word therapy or therapist comes from this. It's not in the reference to medical treatment, but to a real healing that you get in Christ. So that among the powers of the Messiah in the Gospels is the power to heal, to heal the sick. And the power that we see demonstrated in the life of Jesus that is going to make him the Lord of every spirit. It gives rise to new acts of power. Jesus' healing ministry is a kind of metaphor of the healing that he is going to introduce into the world in and through the gospel. Mark 4.23, it talks about two things together, the preaching and the healing. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Jesus is the great therapist. He is the great physician. And his healing ministry was a living metaphor of the therapy, of the healing that I believe faith can bring. And so the Bible depicts the healing of the nations in the great apocalyptic scenes. But what I want to suggest is that we may have missed the nature of the diagnosis. And in fact, I'm afraid that very often The way that Christianity is taught that it is aggravates the disease. Let me refine my statement to say 
But what is wrong with people takes a particular shape. You know, we experience this living in Japan. There's mental illness in Japan. It's pervasive. But it's peculiar. And that, that is, it's distinctive. Not to say you wouldn't find similar things here, but it's very distinctive. Especially the phenomena of young men in their early 20s, 30s. There's about a million young men that refuse to leave their apartment or house and they spend all day reading comic books or playing video games. They've even created an agency in Japan. They hire what they call big sisters and they'll go in and try to coax these young men to come back into society. Now before we go too far with how unique Japan is, the United States has 2.2 million people that are incarcerated. It's the largest prison population in the world and the highest per capita incarceration rate. In addition to that, we have one of the highest fatality by firearms. 73,505 injuries, 33,630 deaths. Uh, I think that's actually for 2013. This includes about 21,000 suicides, 11,000 homicides. From 1999 to 2017, more than 700,000 people, 702,000 people, have also died of drug overdose. 70,000 people in 2017 died from drug overdoses. What I'm saying is people need help, right? There is illness, there is sickness. People are sick and suffering. This illness is not a singular thing, but I think you could almost say it's culturally specific and time specific. What does that mean? I believe it means that we all bear the bent of a particular culture. But the ill who fall out of the culture they simply are not successful resisting the illness, but somehow I would suggest that a particular culture bends us all in the same direction. This idea was lost with the proto-science in the modern period. They began to isolate illness and crimes in institutions. And the notion came about that the disease is something that is not cultural or corporate, but individual. And so it was isolated, it was externalized, not inherent to the society. And it began to be investigated as a kind of individual sickness. Also, I would say that theologically, Christianity also began to do the same thing, slightly before. That there was a kind of individualism that arose and that sin began to be depicted as a kind of individualistic problem pertaining primarily to the inner working of the individual. So if you go back, you know, what we call the great confinement begins in the 17th century. That there's suddenly the mass incarceration of the population, mass populations were incarcerated with a new network of institutions. This is Michael Foucault's work. He's done two histories, one on the history of madness, the history of the mental institution, and one on the history of prisons. So that we get 
both prisons and asylums particularly, he, he would relate it to 1656 that the Paris hospital opens, the general hospital of Paris, and it housed the, not just the insane, you know, in quotes, but this included psychosis, mental retardation, dementia, epilepsy, and all the rest of organic psychiatry. But it also included debtors, vagrants, petty criminals, political and religious dissenters. You know, as we go through this, think of the Soviet Union. They had an entire psychiatric system in which you had a kind of mild schizophrenia if you disagreed with Stalin. So obviously this can be manipulated. Foucault suggests that it was really a kind of moral panic provoked by rural people are displaced from farms, they're coming in through industrialization, there's a new class of urban labor and there's surplus labor. Whatever the reason, millions of people got locked away and are still locked away. There was a slight dismantling of these institutions, but not really in the 18th century. Lois, you'd be proud to know that it was a good Quaker that helped in the dismantling of some of this. Mental illness was reconceptualized as a kind of moral failure. Foucault's point that actually there was not a huge improvement because there was a kind of constant observation, regimentation, and I think a new sensibility about guilt. He suggests that we get the grand hysteria described by Freud, Jeunet, about a hundred years after this. In the same period, you know, Sigmund Freud is writing, we get Mary Shelley writes, she's a teenage girl, she writes Frankenstein. We get Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. That is that people became aware of the underside of human beings, the unconscious, and it suddenly was taking center stage as a kind of monster. And so the rise of asylums seems to coincide with a particular moment in history. So that being ill, mentally ill, takes on particular features. I think we need to be aware of this. I mentioned I've been meeting with some Mormon boys. If you think of Mormonism as it came through Missouri and all the events, the persecution, Mormonism constitutes a kind of culture, a kind of subculture in the United States. It must be one of the largest subcultures that exists right in the middle of America. I looked it up that Utah, 62% of the population is Mormon, and the highest rate of suicidal ideation is in Utah. Actually, an elder of the Mormon church who also suffered from mental illness has now provoked a study to be done on mental illness among Mormons. Uh, Dallas Jensen is a psychologist who works in Provo, Utah. He says it's the perfectionism, the damaging belief that you're always to do your absolute best. You're kind of working your way to heaven. My work in Japan and the United States, I've worked with mainly with Bible colleges. What you encounter is that there are many levels of mental illness that I'm afraid are not addressed by the way that we usually do theology, the way that we usually do Christianity. 
And I would take it a step further and say that it's often, mental illness is often aggravated by forms of the Christian faith. And there's entire groups of evangelicals who have now recognized this. We have some of former evangelicals that meet in our house on Tuesday night. People who have been traumatized by religion. People are sick and what has made them sick, usually it's very obvious. You don't have to dig very far. But very often the culprit is Christian religion. And so Christianity fails many times not only to address mental suffering, but in fact does the opposite. It can create trauma. It can aggravate mental suffering. And I think the great exodus, I think we're seeing a, a mass exodus from the church, from evangelicalism. And what people are telling us, that the religion causes depression, obsessive compulsions, suicidal self loathing, child abuse. There are books out on child discipline and unfortunately evangelicals are disciplining their children to death, literally. The causes, you know, are not difficult to trace. Notions of authoritarianism, male chauvinism, female subordination, perverse notions of discipline, fear, a huge driving force, isolation, separation, so, people are sick, right? They're suffering, and maybe a perverse understanding of the faith is aggravating the disease. I think the keynote to psychology, a thing that's shared with biblical Christianity, is to recognize that conscience, our conscience, our sense of guilt, what we might call the sinful orientation to the law, what Freud called the superego, this does not provide access to truth about ourselves, but in fact obscures, it deludes, it deceives in regard to our self-knowledge. Freud will even call it unconscious guilt, which I think fits with the biblical picture. That is that people are weighed down and feel the need to be punished and are masochistic and this is accentuated and formalized by perverse religion. And so the law of sin and death, the law of sickness, sin and death, functions in the unconscious. Isn't that the nature of sin? That it's a lie, it's a delusion, that we do not have access to the truth, and that it produces then a punishing self-consciousness from the unconscious. And of course, what Freud calls the superego, and I think what we might call guilt, we should not mistake that for a healthy conscience. This is a kind of odd creature. If you took your conscience and you made a person out of it, can you imagine meeting that person? What an insipid, disgusting person people's conscience would make. You know, were we to meet this figure, this accusatory figure, this internal critic, this unrelenting fault finder, if we were to meet somebody like that at a party, we'd say, there's something wrong with that person. And yet we all know that conscience is often the thing that plagues us. We would say about a person like that, this person is just boring and cruel. And to mistake this thing for ourselves, you know, say, oh, that's me. 
maybe that would just certainly involve self-hatred. I hate that part of myself, right? This continually accusing consciousness. But I think the point is that this misses that, no, this thing that has us in its grip is not who we are, but it is in fact traumatizing us. It's a kind of obscene conscience. And so the fault, the guilty conscience accuses us of, it's not so much a moral failing. This is the great Hamlet soliloquy, to be or not to be. Is it nobler to suffer the slings and arrows of a punishing conscience or to find rest in death? I'm summarizing Hamlet. There's a children's story does the same thing. It's called the missing piece. It's this big circle and there's a piece missing in the circle and the circle's going along. I'm looking for my missing piece. And it goes around rolling along aching for filling in what is absent. There is, I think, a felt lack of being, a compulsion to obtain, endlessly running the maze of accusation, compulsion to repeat that we imagine that we will fill in the missing piece. To confuse this punishing conscience, this punishing superego, with the voice of God is to make of religion the greatest possible evil. To imagine that this division, this dialectic, this antagonism, and there is a kind of missing piece Christianity in which we're continually agonistically struggling. Jesus is always just hidden. The real kingdom is elsewhere. The final reality transcends us and the true self eludes us. Rather than Christianity healing, delivering, saving, I think it's often geared more toward condemning, devaluing, traumatizing, and ultimately consuming life in what is for all practical purposes mental illness mistaken for the faith of the New Testament. And so the first step in any cure will mean getting rid of a perverse understanding of God and mistaking human conscience with God. There is a lack in human life and this lack can become the controlling power. And religion, I think perverse religion, accentuates what is in fact an already existing problem. You know, this is the work that I've done on Romans 7, that it indicates it's life itself that's missing. And giving oneself to the pursuit of life through the conscience or through the law Paul describes as a kind of living death. Who will rescue me? He cries out. He's describing great mental agony. This body of death. And he says, thank God, Christ Jesus has rescued me. That the missing piece can accentuate or even constitute the element of the disease as it's depicted by religion. And Paul is describing that religion. His former religion. And so to imagine that this deluded punishment is a necessity enacted by God and even sometimes pictured as fulfilled in Christ is to take the human disease and make it a religion. To make the cross the culminating point of the disease. You know, death is the cure. The punishment is a divine necessity. Trauma is taken as a kind of healing. It confounds 
the problem and the answer, the cure and the disease, and it is precisely this confounded religion that is traumatizing so many. Christ's death is often made to support a notion of salvation which pictures death itself as salvific. This is just paganism. If the body of Christ is the empirical bearer of necessary punishment, Christians are made like those at the foot of the cross to revel and rejoice in the death of Christ, fascinated by the torture because it in some way duplicates their own pain. You know, this was Henry Bergson. He says at the outbreak of the World War, he felt such relief within himself because now the world matched his inner pain. God himself in this perverse religion is pictured at war with himself and this somehow matches our own inner turmoil. And it's almost as if the religion becomes the origin of the disease. And so a healing faith begins by recognizing that mental suffering is precisely that addressed by the great physician. Jesus addresses our pain, our suffering. The therapy, the therapeuo of Christ is aimed at the human experience of mental suffering. In Paul's explanation, perverse desire gives rise to punishing suffering as the law, and think here, you know, the law is just authority, father, superego, is presumed to be a kind of means of achieving the self. But it actually involves the loss of self. That's what Paul's describing. It's what Jesus is describing. He who would gain his life through this perverse means loses his life. Right? He who would lose his life, that is that form of life, for my sake in the gospel, will gain life. So the pursuit of life in the law enacts a loss. And this is what Paul describes. He, he actually uses visual language. He uses the language of seeing himself from outside of himself in a kind of dualistic fashion. He sees his body as a kind of alien force. And he says this division induces evil, evil works. It's interesting. This is precisely what Freud comes up with, the kind of ambiguity that love and hate are always mixed together, desire and frustration. Think of the story of Genesis. Knowing good and evil, knowing will give you being, you will be like gods. Can you know your way to being? Those are two different registers. There's no possibility of reconciliation between being and knowing, or as Paul says it, between the law of the mind and the law of the flesh. They're in opposition to each other, and to imagine that Christ satisfies this antagonistic law, no, that's to take the problem and make it the solution. It's to posit the sinful delusion as ultimate reality. And so authentic faith does not play into this necessity, but says this is a delusion, this is a lie. And where this delusion arises, you know, it arises through lack, lack of self, lack of life. The ground of faith, this is Paul's answer to Romans 7, is in life in the spirit. 
Thank God that I've been delivered from the body of death through the life of the Spirit. Our goal is conformity to the image of God. And it's very interesting that he shifts language. How do we conform to Christ? Do we look at his picture and try to take on the look of, I don't know if this is what he really looked like. That's not the way we do it, right? But the conformity is auditory. The word of God comes to us and we're shaped by that word. So achieving his likeness is not a static visual process. It's a dynamic process of hearing, of obeying, of walking as he did, of setting the mind on the things of the spirit, of active submission and patience. And one works out this healing salvation as the law of life in the spirit. And this law of life in the spirit, Paul pictures as displacing the punishing law of sin and death. It's not God causing mental suffering. It's not God that is causing people to have messed up lives. But what is being exposed to us is it's the orientation that people have to authority, to life, to law, to death. And this is undone. And so what is depicted in the New Testament, this is where we begin. Why are people sick? Because they're part of sick cultures, of sick societies, of sick families. How are people going to be healed? Are we just going to manipulate the inside? Or in fact, do we need to reconstitute the culture, the society, becoming a community which resists the disease of isolation, alienation, and punishing cruelty? The body of Christ then, the church, is a healing community, a healing body, as it offers a reconciling cure of love. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul says, of those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Nothing can separate. What I think the human predicament, the human problem, always consists of, is that we're separated out. There's alienation. There is a gap. There's a missing piece. Paul says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities nor powers, neither things present nor things to come, neither height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is healing. There is life. So the human tendency, even the Christian tendency, the idolatrous tendency, is to create an obstacle that would serve to keep this antagonistic desire alive. And the history of theology, strangely enough. You, know, you just go through Augustinian notion that we're separated out from the kingdom of God. The Calvinistic notion we're split within ourselves. The Constantinian notion that there is a divide. And you have to serve in two kingdoms. The trauma of perverse Christianity, unfortunately, is doubly tragic in that it's displacement of a healing faith that would really eliminate the gap, the divide, the lack. It's no longer available and it's, in fact, pitting ourselves. It's creating a trauma. Let me close with a, a scripture. This is Romans 10, 6 to 10. That describes the closure of the gap. 
the elimination of the alienation. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Think of a continual striving. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved. There is a bringing together of the heart of a person who believes, resulting in righteousness as with his mouth he confesses, so that the heart and the mind, the body, are not going in different directions, but there's a unified working in and through the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.